It's like thinking that the purpose of the weather report is to figure out how to make it look like the weather is always going to be nice. That's not what we want. We want accurate weather report. If, it's, if a tornado is going to hit tomorrow, we want to know that a tornado is going to hit tomorrow. We don't want to like change our definition of a tornado so that the weather report is, oh, it's really sunny. But today, sunny means you're going to get hit by a tornado. You want the weather report to tell you something fucking useful about what is happening in the world. That is what prices do. <laughs> get ready for this epic wandering rant. Because you're about to listen to the best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are going to start the week out with a guy's take to follow up the piece by Elgato uh, from the last episode, but from Friday. It was titled, How to Fix Banking and Money, PBDC or Private Bank Digital Currency versus CBDC or Central Bank Digital Currency. And I really love this piece because there were so many excellent kind of principles or foundational rules and concepts and ideas around trust and how a competitive market like reinforces that. But then there were so many just subtle misunderstandings on the foundations of those things, why they can arise, where they cannot arise, and why there is something, there is a missing piece to his puzzle. And that Fundamentally, Bitcoin is exactly it. It's exactly what he needs to make the reality uh, or the the system that he hopes to achieve or says, uh, uh, believes to be the better system. How could it even arise? Like what is standing in its way and what the solution to it is? And I think it's fundamentally a huge, a very common misunderstanding. Um, again, I really liked the article. Um, aside from some of the conclusions and some of the misunderstandings of where the major pieces of this puzzle are, everything that he laid out, one layer up, one to two layers up in money was perfectly applicable. Like, I don't I don't disagree with any of it, but the foundations, I, he didn't seem to know how to separate the foundations from the payment systems, from the currency, from these sorts of things. For example, he said he talked about like Bitcoin not being scalable and it's a complete it's a misunderstanding of what kind of scaling you need. Like Bitcoin isn't competing with Visa. Like we'll get to that in just a moment um, because, you know, we need to talk to uh, talk about like Zabo's Nick Zabo's social scalability and consensus systems and these sorts of things. And it's the difference between it, it's a conflation between uh, money, currency and payments. And this is extremely, an extremely common mental model amongst people, even in finance, even in money and banking, that these things are the same thing because they have been conflated largely in our current system, but they never were conflated. They were completely different layers in the monetary architecture, have been for about the better part of half, a little over half a millennia, really about the 1500s is this when this started in full earnest. 
And it was built from the fact that payments and currency essentially couldn't be separate from it because all trade was local. And the only way to have a trustless way to trade, which is exactly what you need in order to build up trust in business and trust in a community, is to have something independent to lean on, is to have something like gold that neither party controls. Then you have something to settle in that allows you to... uh, allows you to exit the trusted relationship, which gives you reliability, which gives you integrity in starting a trusted relationship to begin with. You have to have a trusted money at the end of the day. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I want to go ahead and just start into um, some quotes uh, from this piece and hit some of the main ideas. I want to take a quick pause and thank our sponsors before we get into it. First off, if you want to protect yourself from a global financial collapse, the most important thing you can do is to get your money out of it. Get your Bitcoin on a CoinKite hardware device, a cold card. The cold card Mark IV is an amazing device. It's very versatile and a long trusted device in the space. Not only the numerous other devices and features and things that they have available, you've got to check it out. 9% off with code BitcoinAudible, everything in your cart. And also they got the Q1 on the way, which you can pre-order now. I've already done it. And if you would like to as well, the note, I mean, the the link will be in the show notes. Uh, And then also you've got to get the Bitcoin. And there are two phenomenal, there are two of my favorite ways to get Bitcoin. One are Swan Bitcoin. I buy Bitcoin every single week. I smash buy all the time. It's my automatic savings plan that automatically withdraws to my keys. And then my fold card which is a debit card that pays me sats back on everything in my life. I get gift cards. I get sats back. I do Amazon gift cards. Amazon has not seen a debit card, has not charged a debit card of mine in years. Uber, Airbnb, all the traveling for Bitcoin 2023. You want to get 10% off those tickets? You can use also code Bitcoin Audible when you're traveling. Uber, Airbnb, your flight, your, your hotel, all of that stuff. Go check out Fold. You'll get sats back on gift cards for all of it. It feels really good when you're spending a lot of money on travel to be able to count, to just be like, oh, wow, I just got like 300, 500,000 sats for all of this. It feels, it's a little good. It's like, you know, you, you're just a reassurance. Check them all out with links and fun stuff, goodies and discounts in the show notes. With that, let's jump back in. One of the fundamental principles that Elgato lays out in this piece is 100% accurate. I think it's completely true is that competition and the, and a complete lack of guardrails is what will create the most stable, most robust, best for the customer outcome. Because what it means is that any sort of veering, unsafe veering or too much leverage or whatever means that you are dead along with all of the trust and relationships you have built up with other businesses, other customers, it is actually regulation, fail-safes, and bailouts that cause all of this stuff to get worse and worse and worse with no end in sight. It is exactly the thinking of we need someone to control this instability and we need someone to control this bad behavior that actually incentivizes all of it. And just look at the results. We've been doing this mentality for how many years, how many decades, 
How long? And what, it, what has it produced? Is it better today? Are the banking crises less frequent? They're like every two years right now. Like literal massive bank insolvencies, systemic, hugely systemic uh, problems and corruption at an unbelievable scale, a scale that is historically unprecedented actually. We spend billions of dollars on regulation and they have one job. Their one job is to keep this in check and make it not happen. And it's worse as it has ever been. We really need to stop and reflect on exactly why. And it requires us to change how we think about it. Because if we don't, we're just going to keep getting the same consequences. We're going to get the same results over and over again. If we continue to think it's just more centralized power in a bigger, more bloated bureaucracy that has literally produced the disaster that we are currency currently going through. Like, think about it. The current system and the current state of the financial system is the report card of the financial regulators. And there's a really good quote that kind of sums up a major fundamental disconnect that this environment has caused. And it says, quote, we have fundamentally set the idea of sound money in opposition to sound banking and have wound up with that most classic of governmental outcomes. Neither. We literally have a system where sound money would cause the thing to collapse. And the idea of sound banking is to create a way to quickly and immediately paper over any mistakes. Not to not make mistakes, but to cover them up when they are inevitably made and to systemically embed that mistake going forward. And the very next line in the article actually is, this is an easy problem to solve. You just need markets and not monopolies. And yes, mandatory regulation, accreditation, and chartering of financial actors and institutions is just another form of monopoly. This is something that so many people do not understand. It do, if, you have, if you have a banking cartel that's like controlling the market and then you create a banking accreditation or chartering system, those institutions just get their policies, their behaviors, and their culture permanently cemented into the system. Monopoly is bad because it resists change. The world changes. The environment changes. The reality of resources change. The degree of leverage and the degree of risk that is going on and the speed with which things shift in the economy change. And the which economy we're relying on and which is more productive changes. If you do not have a system where the behaviors, the the culture can change in response to that. You have a system that's just dead in the long run. A great example is if you cement in a small deficit, a small proclivity to leverage just a little bit too much 70 years ago, and then you excuse it and you support it and you make it a part of the actual rules of the system, well, that leverage is just going to grow. That debt is just going to grow. 
And the culture of the people who replaced the previous people in the bank is going to be accepting a little bit more leverage and a little bit more debt. And the culture of the people who replaced the last regulators is going to be apologizing for more debt and cutting even more corners and covering up even more mistakes and on and on and on until you have what we have today, which is hundreds of trillions of dollars in unfunded liabilities, shit we have promised to pay for that we cannot possibly pay for and that matters it doesn't you can't just excuse it away it means that we're talking about consuming hundreds of trillions of dollars in real resources if you promise that everybody's going to have three cars in a driveway in a house in 10 years that means that you have to have three cars for every single person a house for every single person and a driveway for every single person if you only have a hundredth of the number of houses driveways and cars in either in, in in order to fulfill that promise, the promise is just going to collapse. And and you're, you're saying that we should take all of our scarce resources, all of the time and labor that we have that's very precious to us that we want to send toward our ends now has to be committing to three cars, even though maybe we only want one car. Well, you were promised three, so we have to make three cars. So all the all the doctors we would have trained, all the people we would have, you know, gotten coding and making far better apps or making a more efficient system or to make something to replace cars altogether is now stuck in a liability to give everybody to make everybody three cars. We're wasting astronomical amounts of resources precious resources with scarce people wasting our time doing things that we can't trying to fulfill promises that we can't even possibly fulfill and that we wouldn't even necessarily want to fulfill anymore that is what a monopolistic system has done to us and understand that is the system that we are in and we have liabilities we have promised payouts retirement social security um pension funds we can't, I mean, just, it's not even, I, I can't express how retardedly impossible it is to pay for any of it. If your government is promising you anything that you think is going to be a net benefit or is going to be a little bit more than last year, understand that it, the, the capability of even beginning to pay for it, if we cut what the government did by 80%, is still in question. If we gutted the thing, if we just ripped out 80% of what they promised, we still technically couldn't afford it. Not on a mark-to-market basis. That's how much of the money isn't there. The only reason that could maybe work is because of the absolute explosion of productivity and the releasing of the technological growth that would be allowed in the economy. So it wouldn't be that we can pay for it now or that the current trajectory could pay for it. It's that you would make the economy so insanely productive by actually making free markets work again that you could potentially produce enough in five to 10 years to make those past promises actually seem reasonable. But that's a maybe. That's a maybe if you just absolutely gutted the living crap out of the system that we are currently in. Okay, I already t tangented like crazy. So one, we want a, so he's laying out a couple of the key salients uh, about how to get there. One, we want a sound currency that retains value. We want sound currency that retains value over time and is useful as a medium of account, exchange, and savings. This is where we begin to, well, this is an indication. You could say this, this is kind of axiomatically true, right? Is that you need these things. 
But this is where we begin to get into the conflation, which is sort of implied here, but makes a lot more sense further down between currency, money, and payments. Is that in order to have good to have good savings and to be a reliable unit of account, what you need is a reliable supply that cannot be changed. You need a reliable monetary schedule that then grows the network so that it is liquid enough to be a unit of account. So the the concrete defined can't be changed unambiguous monetary schedule this is why gold historically won as the monetary good for literally thousands of years it always reverted back to gold or the monetary metals it is because they had the most reliable most independent monetary policy is dictated by the universe it is this atom and it's too freaking hard to make more of this atom it's easier to just go dig gold up out of the ground physics is unambiguous physics does not let you cheat you either expend the energy or you do not get more gold this makes gold scarce this makes gold incredibly difficult to acquire which makes it a great unit of account but it first has to hold value it first has to prove that if the network grows by 10x which you know if the network is only 100 people if it grows to a thousand people, that might be very, very volatile. It might be very, very crazy. And the purchasing power of that gold might be very, very hard to determine because the network is fluctuating massively. But the fact that it grew that much and the supply did not change is exactly what allows an equilibrium price to emerge. It allows us to establish what its relationship is, how much gold there is, to the number of people in the network and the amount of value in the network, the amount of goods and services in the network, which begins to make it work as a medium of exchange. Then you build out currencies, which are gold redemption notes or gold mechanisms, and you build out payment systems on top of these things to make the market for gold clearing more liquid, uh, faster, and cheaper. The problem is that these higher layers come with new credit risks. They come with new counterparties that can spy on transactions and involve themselves and decide which transactions can go through and which can't and can manipulate the supply by printing more currency units than actual money backing it. So essentially the expansion of the payment networks and the currency, the redeemed currencies on top of it runs a risk if overly centralized and too easy to control by malicious parties for governments to come in and just say all banks are going to now do this if it's too easy to control it runs the risk of fundamentally cheating the underlying gold because you're not actually using gold you can always verify and you can't cheat the gold itself but if 99 percent of people are using gold notes well then it is easy to cheat the supply of gold because you're not cheating the gold you're cheating the notes so anyway, we'll come back to that a little bit in more depth because there's some explicit things that he says that I think it, it makes it easier to address. Um, and then two, that we want a banking system. This is a quote. Two, we want a banking system that is sound and stable, not prone to runs, crashes, or speculative excesses, and that can verifiably demonstrate those tra traits instead of appearing the black box that will one day explode again. Oh God, it's such a... 100%. I could not agree more with that statement, which would mean that you want it very, very easy to verify against the base unit that everybody is using to communicate. Now, I'm going to skip down. Uh, he says the, uh, 
There, there's uh, basically the things that can't be changed. Governments are untrustworthy stewards of fiat currency. We're not going to get smarter guys next time. Fractional reserve is inherently risky. Yes, prone to credit risk, rate risk, blah, blah, blah. Regulators are not fixing this and, and never have, and we're not going to get smarter guys next time. And the availability of bailouts, et cetera, et cetera, makes all of this worse. Now, quote, the gold standard was a problematic institution. It set off more than a few balance of payments crises. It also diverted activity toward finding, plundering, and refining shiny rocks and away from more productive uses. But it did manage to keep price levels fairly stable. This has most emphatically not been the case since, as governments got addicted to printing via living within their means and the Cantillian, and the Cantillian cronies all got fat off of it. Now, there's actually a pretty interesting element here. This is why 1A money becomes a good, or is established as a good money. It develops something called a monetary premium, a price that it is sustained at that is way above its utility price because it then becomes a network good. So, for example, if you, if we tried to price everything in TVs and People started buying TVs, not because they needed TVs, not because they wanted the utility of a TV, but because they could then trade their TV later. They just wanted to hold it in the interim, like, you know, for a couple of weeks and then trade it to somebody else. It was just a very liquid market. There was a demand for TVs. And then everybody else reflexively started buying TVs, again, not because they wanted TVs, because they were just like storing them in a room like cash. Understand, this means the price of TVs, if, if the supply of TVs don't change, the price of TVs is going to skyrocket. Absolutely skyrocket. Because right now the demand is like one or two TVs per household. If they started being used as cash, the demand might be 100 TVs per household. 1,000 TVs per household. Everybody is going to want a TV. The people who didn't want TVs before and had no use for a TV are now just going to stock up on TVs because they need money. They need to eat later. They need to, you know, travel. They need to go, you know, they fly on a plane, uh, uh, fill their gas, uh, fill, fill their car up with gas. And everybody's using TVs to do this. So what happens? Its price skyrockets. If you can't create more TVs, it stays that way. And it continues to translate into gas. It continues to translate into food later on. The same amount. Because everybody... Uh, now operating, now buying TVs, the, pr the higher price is sustainable. But that's only if you can't create more TVs. If you can create more TVs at the original price of TVs, if you can, like if the price of a TV went from $100 to $1,000 or $10,000 or something, and everybody's stocking them in their homes because they're using them as cash, they're using them as you know, a medium of exchange, well, if it still only costs $100 to create a TV, you know what will happen? People will just make TVs. They will stop doing everything else. If a TV sells for $10,000 at any point in time, literally 98% of any reasoning, logical human being with a business enterprise will stop whatever they are doing and make TVs until the price crashes all the way back down to $100. They fulfill all of that extra demand. So the $10,000 per TV was the monetary premium. The collapse all the way back down to 100 is the fact that the characteristic of TVs, they are too easy to create, 
they are not good money, collapses the monetary premium. It is unsustainable. The reason gold works as money is because even if the price keeps going up and up and up, and the network keeps growing larger and larger and larger, and people are using gold not because they want shiny metal, not because they want to stick it in electronics, but because 90% of other people are storing it and saving it and using it to spend and translate value into the future across time, it develops a huge monetary premium, but if it is scarce enough, you can't get more of it quick enough to knock the premium down. It stays at a higher level. So the utility price of gold, an ounce of gold right now, might be 150 bucks, might be $200, but we don't use it for any of those utilities because it's too valuable as a money. It's too valuable as a network good. Now, this is where we kind of get to, to where things kind of go off the rails a little bit. And this is a fundamental misunderstanding of money and more specifically why it changes in value rather than it's, it's focusing on the outcome as a characteristic of the money itself, the pricing outcome, without, without recognizing that the price changing is what makes money good. I'll explain. I'll explain in detail here, but um, so we go back to a quote it says, of course, a currency that increases in value over time might be even worse than obviously he's talking about one that decreases in value over time because no one will want to lend it. You can just sit on piles of money and grow wealthier in real terms. And so you underinvest, especially as the price of real assets drops in nominal terms. Imagine buying a house that you knew was going to drop in nominal value. This is a fundamental misunderstanding or failure to recognize why the price or why the value of a money that does not change in supply goes up at all in purchasing power understand if the economy stayed consistent and the money stayed consistent nothing would change with the price there would be an equilibrium in the number of people who were saving it and trying to keep it for the future and the consumption needed to take place in order to sustain life and everyone's standard of living and if it ever got out of balance, the price of money went up, the purchasing power of money went up because too many people were saving. That is the very mechanism by which people are incentivized to spend their savings, which decreases the supply of savings and increases the liquid supply of the money in the market and brings us back to equilibrium price. For someone who seemed so intelligent and thoughtful about the du the duality of market mechanisms the profit the loss the risk the reward the the price the value growth and the value decline it's interesting that he he only applied one half of the equation to a stable currency and seems to imply that bitcoin or a sound money is going to just forever go up in price and everybody can hoard and get rich for infinity which just think about that for a little bit, that everybody's just going to stop working and stop making things, but everybody's going to have an infinite number of things to purchase with their money. 
and then uses housing as an example, which is funny because housing is not supposed to be an investment. This is something that is actually a consequence of our debt-based monetary system where you can just print money out of thin air and you're constantly issuing new debt into the world and that housing actually goes up in price when it shouldn't. He actually is using an example here, and granted, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense to be in that mindset that this is a this is an investment. It's the middle class savings account for crying out loud because money isn't doing its job. Here's the thing: we should not be investing in houses. We should be using them. This idea that a house is an investment is purely a consequence of a debt-driven system with an asset that's really hard to make more of. Basically, we have a system, we have an economy where houses carry a monetary premium. Therefore, El Gato and everybody else thinks it's crazy for the value of a house to decline in nominal terms or even to say stay the same. We literally expect them to go up, but they shouldn't. They're a comp- they're totally a consumption good. You could make the exact same claim about cars. If cars were more difficult to make, they would behave monetarily and around their debt just like houses. But we don't, why don't we expect how, uh, cars to go up in value? Why do we accept that they nominally decline? In fact, they instantly decline in value as soon as we drive them off the lot. So why does anybody buy them? Well, because they need a car. They need a car to drive some to drive around to in, to have some other productive use or because they specifically want to consume them. Nobody buys cars pointlessly driving up the price of cars because they need a savings account. Because they need to hold on to some asset that does not suffocate all of the value, that does not bleed the value out of what they already earned in the past. That's what your money is. I use this example all the times, all, all the time, is that if you make a million sandwiches and save one dollar for every single sandwich that you make and you give them to other people, you sell them to other people, the reason you have a million dollars is because it is a record that you have made a million sandwiches, that you have fed a million people and you haven't eaten a single one of them. You didn't consume anything. You did nothing but produce resources into the economy. If you don't get that value back out, there's no reason for you to keep making sandwiches. And if somebody forces you to buy a house that you don't even need or to purchase some stock or investment to keep your million dollars just so that it doesn't constantly bleed so that next year it's not worth 900,000 sandwiches and then 500,000 sandwiches and then 100,000 sandwiches. They're just cheating you out of what you already earned and making you earn it a second time. Money is just supposed to translate the shit that we have done in the past to the consumption we are allowed to make in the future. I really think this idea that a house is supposed to go up nominally in value and think about how much that distorts the price of houses. Like, how many multiples is the price of a house three times, five times more than what it would be if it didn't go up in value? How many people would buy a house, would just rent instead, or didn't really need to lock themselves down, weren't buying a long-term position, but they buy the house anyway because it's going to go up in value, because it's going to hold their value, and because they can get the debt for super cheap? A $500,000 house, would that actually be a $100,000 house in a market that actually makes a slight bit of sense? In an economy with sound money, maybe it's an $80,000 house. Well, then suddenly it's a whole hell of a lot more affordable, isn't it? 
And it's a whole hell of a lot easier to save up 50% of your house and go into debt a little bit when you need the utility of consuming a house and you need a place to live. We read an article by Alan Ferrant. Who, what was this article? Man, I, I don't remember. I'll see if I can find it. And if, and if I do find it, I'll make a note in the description. Um, but we read an article that was talking about how houses explaining how and why houses have become essentially a form of money because money has stopped being money. And one of the statistics that they uh, pointed out was that one third, and this is probably worse than it is than it was then, because this is a couple of years ago now, and the statistic was like a year or two old, but that one third of luxury housing around Manhattan sat empty all year round because rich people were just parking money. Because houses are investments, not places to live. Think about how much that destroys and creates such a shortage of housing and real estate. And what an incredible mismatch that is between the actual market and the actual supply and the actual demand for a place to live. And this is in the same city that has a freaking astronomical homeless problem. Why are there so many houses sitting empty? Because they're investments and they shouldn't be. It's exactly like buying two or three cars when you only need one. But it's just because those other two cars can be sold later, you know, two years later, five years later at the exact same price or, you know, 10% higher price. And you just don't, you have no, you have no reason to use them. What does that do? All it does is jack up the price of cars. And for all the poor people that already have a beat up car and really desperately want to replace it, they can't do it. They can't do it because you're stealing cars and just parking them. And what happens is real estate ends up behaving more like money than money does. And instead of being used as shelter, which, if you would like to take note, is one of the three human necessities that we are removing shelter from the market in mass by orders of magnitude more than it is available in demand because we think it's, it's an investment and we are keeping people homeless and distorting the market away from them being able to afford anything because it's not being used as shelter. Can you imagine if people were just scooping up water that didn't need to drink it? Like just billions and billions and billions of gallons of fresh water and just keeping it somewhere and not letting people have it? It's a freaking necessity. It is one of three necessities, food, water, shelter, distorting that market and making like this is this is the thing about like people talk about like, oh, you need to inflate the money a little bit to encourage investment because otherwise they'll hoard it. Well, no, you flip that shit over. Just think about it. Just think about it. They're just going to hoard things. You want them to hoard the money because that means they're not consuming the resources that we need to live and the things that give us our uh, standard of living, the, the food. They're not hoarding houses. They're not hoarding cars. They're not hoarding land. They're not hoarding the TVs and the infrastructure that we need. They're not hoarding any of the stuff. They're hoarding the record of what they could maybe consume in the future because it actually does its job. It maintains the record efficiently. 
You don't stop people from hoarding things that go up in value. You just make them hoard stuff that people need instead of things that they don't. Money is not a consumed resource. You don't eat it. You don't make clothes out of it. You don't build houses out of it. It stays the same. $100 goes from me to you to Bob to Nancy to Charlie and back to me. And it's the same $100. It never gets used up. It never degrades. That's its entire purpose. So going back to shelter, going back to housing, housing should fall in nominal value because it is a static consumable good that requires a lot of maintenance and degrades over time. And if we stopped using it as an investment because we had sound money that didn't lose its value and housing prices stayed stable or fell when we had a huge increase in the supply of houses, then it would only be used for its singular sensible purpose, which is shelter, and houses would be vastly, vastly more affordable today than they are now, or in the future than they are now. And one of the three necessities of human life would be freed up and far more available to all of the people who need it. Now, back to why does a money increase in value? Because there is a note that he is referring to here that Bitcoin has gone up in value in, uh, massively since you know, its inception. But that is not because stable supply money naturally goes up in value endlessly for all time and increases in pur its purchasing power. That's because the network, again, going back to an earlier point, money is a network good, which means it is more valuable the more people use it and the more goods it is able to it, it is tradable for so the more people who join the network the more people who use bitcoin and accept bitcoin the more valuable each individual bitcoin unit is that is during monetization that is during network adoption that is not a sustained thing it stops after it becomes a widely accepted medium of exchange and an ultimately a unit of account. But it has to happen in those stages. It first has to be able to maintain value and prove that it can maintain a monetary premium. And then the proof that it does that is exactly what grows the network and encourages more people to save and accept in it, which is what makes it stable, which, what is, which is what makes prices useful. And this gets to a really fundamental misunderstanding that does not seem to have any, that, it, that is not in this article anywhere, where it does not seem to be an implicit piece of knowledge informing Elgato's argument. This is about a money that quote-unquote falls in value or increases in value or is stable in value. We are back to the fallacy of stability for the sake of stability. The infinitely more important question relies on understanding why a money increases or decreases in value. Understand a stable money system, a stable money supply, will only increase in purchasing power after the establishment of its monetary network, after it is monetized, if, if, the amount of value in the economy, the amount of stuff that you can buy with it, the overall productivity and the capital growth of that economy goes up. The deflation of money in purchasing power, 
the ability for it to buy, of a sound money to buy more slightly over time, is the only genuine measure of the growth in the wealth of society that we can possibly have and that could possibly be accurate. Because to say that we can measure it with prices and manipulate it down is to is is the pretense of knowledge it's to say that we can understand that what the price tells us then allows us to make a judgment about the price prices are only relative if you do not have a static totem a foundation of constant supply in order to compare them to they are meaningless you're not measuring the value in the economy you're measuring the ability and the scope by which you cheated the money supply both GDP and inflation, when you have a money supply that isn't stable and that you cannot audit, you do not know how much is out there. You can't even really guess properly how much is out there and what's being chased, what's chasing things in the market and what is locked up. And it's all convoluted and it's 16 different layers and you genuinely don't know the supply. Both GDP and inflation become unitless measurements. It's like trying to measure a house without having an inch or a foot. You don't know you're you just the inch or the foot is the black box. You can't do measurements. You can't build things. This is why the economy is so desperately, horribly misallocated. Why we are so viciously in debt, even though it would be obvious if you had any sort of sound economic signal that this is a really, really stupid decision and we should stop doing this. We should change our behavior, but we don't have real prices. And that's the thing. We do not want stable prices. We want accurate prices. We want prices that are real, that tell us something useful about what is going on in the economy because it is the only measure that we have, it is the only signal that we have that is actually taking into account everyone's value judgment, everyone's decision making, everyone's situation and is circularly building on itself to be as accurate as possible as possible at any one second by directing capital and changing the user behavior. If it is stable at just like $12 for a, you know, a pound of meat arbitrarily for no reason, not because the, the difficulty of acquiring meat or the, the supply of cows is higher or lower, but just because we like arbitrarily like really like that it's $12 right now. So maybe you should just stay $12 infinitely and forever and all days. And it should never change because I really like $12. I'm going to budget for $12. No, no, we want it to change when the economy changes, when it's relation to the entire, to the whole, to the other, uh, to the other goods and services in, in the economy, when the productivity changes, when the ability to get meat in, in good quality and in quantity changes, you want the price of the thing to change, but you only get any useful information out of it if your unit didn't change in supply. If you are if you are cheating the supply of money in some arbitrary way or in some subjective way that, oh, maybe the economy grew this much and we're going to print this much or we're going to change this much of the supply. All you do is start measuring money, the, the change in the money supply, and you make decisions about real resources and actually scarce goods and services that are in response to the change in the money supply and not those goods or services. What 
what is the point of having an in, a totally independent, non-consumable record of what is going on in the economy if we just cheat it, if we keep fucking with the numbers? Money goes from being an objective way to aggregate the, the consequences, the economic consequences of all of our decisions and put it into a, into a piece of signal that directs us, that allows us to direct our sales and change our goals and our behaviors so that we are actually aligned to economic reality. Instead, it's like thinking that the purpose of the weather report is to figure out how to make it look like the weather is always going to be nice. That's not what we want. We want accurate weather report. If it's if a tornado is going to hit tomorrow, we want to know that a tornado is going to hit tomorrow. We don't want to like change our definition of a tornado so that the weather report is, oh, it's really sunny. But today, sunny means you're going to get hit by a tornado. You want the weather report to tell you something fucking useful about what is happening in the world. That is what prices do. That is what prices are. And they don't work if you're changing the money supply. Why do you think, How? why else would all of monetary history have slowly and viciously and painfully over and over and over again narrowed money down to the most scarce, most secure, most reliable, most fungible and portable unit of account that stopped being used for all of its other things? It's just an abstraction. It's a weather report for the economic system so that when the price of wood skyrockets, I don't have to care why. I don't have to know that there was a giant earthquake in China and they started soaking up 20 times as much wood to rebuild as they normally do. I simply don't build the deck that I was going to build because it would be a waste of wood when the price is 10 times as what it was last week. I just change my behavior. If we seek price stability for the sake of stability, we destroy the purpose of the price system. Oof. Okay. I'm not mad at Elgato. <laughs> I just get worked up about this because it seems so obvious. And I, and I know I've just been beating my head against this problem for... 10,000 odd hours of reading and once you see it you can't unsee it so then it's like it's like the never ending story of explaining it over and over and over again and I understand why nobody gets it I do I do it's difficult it took me forever it took me forever to put all the puzzle pieces together and to understand the difference between these hierarchies in the categories and it's not like I'm done it's not like I figured it out and I'm I'm the one who knows all the things but there are some basic truths that if we just take them into account we will stop making really really bad mistakes price stability for the sake of stability is meaningless it's nonsense it doesn't exist it is anti economics and anti-money in every possible way you want real prices and if that means that they go up that they go down that they stay the same that's what you want and the only way to get real prices you have no idea how to predict prices prices are a culmination of skin in the game vicious 
earned, year-long, hopes and dreams, blood and sweat, skin-in-the-game decisions of every single person that has to interact with sound money. When you screw with the money, you screw with the weight of those decisions. And it means that every compounding decision and every compounding trade is sending less useful information into the economy. Only when we have skin in the game, only when you know what that $100 is going to cost you, what it took to get that $100, do you then buy product A over product B? Or you just avoid going on that vacation because you're like, man, it'd be nice to sit at the beach for five days, but $1,000? I remember how much I worked for that. That's my skin in the game choice. That's the real value. Now, if you can just get $1,000 for nothing, yeah, you're just going to go to the beach. Of course you are. But suddenly, that decision and the consumption of those resources have nothing to do with the past and all of your relation between the work and resources that you produced. And if that relationship is broken, that your money in the future in relation to other resources is not the same as your money in relation to resources in the past, then the money isn't doing its one job, which is to translate between resources, between productivities, between labor, between scarce, desired, needed goods and services so that we can weigh them against each other. Because otherwise, trying to price cars in bananas, it's not going to work. We're not going to have a liquid market between cars and bananas and cars and chickens and cars and shoes and cars and microphones and cars and TVs and cars and speakers and cars and furniture. We're not, you, that's never going to happen. You can't possibly have... You, this is why there wasn't society before barter. Money allowed society to happen because when you can weigh every good... In society, every service and every hour of labor and time and energy and skill against a single totem, when you can align everything to the same clock, then you can cooperate. Then you can work together. Then you have consensus on the foundation of your economic system, on the foundation of your time, a foundation for your math. If everybody isn't agreeing that one plus one equals two and somebody else thinks one plus one equals three, you're not going to do business with that person. That is the role. That's the level at which money plays. It's not a payment system. It's not an app. It's about integrity of its relationship to everything else in the world. The economy is not stable. The world is not stable. Productivity is not stable. Warehouses are not stable. Sometimes they work really great. Sometimes something bad happens. Prices should reflect that. The purpose of prices are to give us workable information about the decisions we should make and what the highest value actions and productivity and the capital, uh, the capital enterprises that we can engage in in relation to all other options. If we manipulate money, if we control the supply, if we destroy the integrity of the monetary schedule in order to get some false sense of stability in the monetary signal, much like instead of riding the plane, we break the altimeter and just push it up with our finger and make it look like we're flying straight, we get instability 
in the world. We get instability in the real economy. Stability in the money supply means unstable prices, means a stable and robust economy. Because behaviors, decisions, capital investment change when conditions change. Because the money is the totem that lets us know what the hell happened. The counterintuitiveness of prices is that the way to make the economy stable and have stable prices is to not manipulate the money at all and to allow prices to actually be maximally unstable. Because that lack of that instability is exactly what leads to robust decision-making, accurate information transfer, agile markets, and behaviors and a people, economic actors, that respond quickly and accurately to real-world changes in the state of real-world resources. Just like if your altimeter responds very, very quickly to what your plane is doing, the pilot can change very, very quickly the way that they are flying the plane, and finally you get a smooth flight. But if you start screwing with the altimeter, you're gonna have a bad flight. And the worst thing about doing this by screwing with the accounting system to try to get some false, fake, arbitrary stability is that there's no, there's no window to look through. Like in a plane. Like, the, the economy is so vast and so complex and is accounting for so many billions of people in hundreds of billions, trillions of transactions and judgments and skin-in-the-game weight of the value of resources. There's no alternative. There's no other way to see what's going on. It's price, it's real prices or nothing. It's real prices or we just, we're flying blind. The combination of all of the individuals making their individual decisions and value judgments at every single turn, at every single interaction, every second, they decide to do A instead of B. The outcome of that is essentially a vast parallel supercomputing system trying to figure out what the value and relative importance of all of our our separate goals and and values and hopes and decisions and the things that we consume and the same things that we make it is a impossibly huge parallel computing system with the individual brain and values and weights of every single person in the economy. And everybody has an effect on the price. And then the price affects everybody. It's this giant, circular, never-ending process of... It's a never-ending discovery of what the value of right now is. It's infinite, and it never stops. And as soon as it reacts... Oh, actually, there was a really great analogy. In Bitcoin is Venice. Alan Farrington and Sasha Myers, there's something called a triangle game. Is uh, You get a room full of people, like hundreds of people. Um, or, I mean, you can do it with 10. Uh, but you do it with just a ton of people. Just imagine a huge room. And then you just randomly, you tell everybody in their heads to pick two people. And that as people mingle about and move, that you don't tell them who they are. Um, or, I mean, I guess it do doesn't really matter, actually. The outcome would 
pretty much be the same. But you try to create an equilateral triangle based on where you're standing in the room with those two people. So you're always just like looking like, where is it? Where are those two people? And then you try to get the middle point of where the equilateral triangle would be. However, you don't know who all is in everybody's triangle. So as soon as you move, you're inevitably in somebody, you might be in 10 other people's triangle. So as soon as you move, you might be in somebody's triangle with who you were in a triangle with. But as soon as you move, well, then all the other people that use you in their triangle also have to move to be in the right spot to reform that triangle. And then when all 10 of those other people or whoever move, well, then everybody who has them in their triangle then moves. And then inevitably, it comes back to one of the two people in your triangle, and they move, and then you have to move again. And it's a never-ending process. It looks like absolute chaos, but there's very simple order at the heart of what's going on. Very simple rules, very reliable rules, very simple structure, insanely complex, impossible-to-predict outcomes. That is a way to visualize what is happening in the economy and the outcome of prices. It is infinitely complex and it is self-reflexive. As soon as something changes, it changes somebody's behavior, which changes it, and on and on and on. And it is reflecting what is going on, just like my movements in that room are reflecting the movements of the two people that I'm trying to make a triangle with. Bitcoin is about establishing independent, incorruptible monetary integrity. A simple, reliable, never-changing set of rules. A static supply to weigh everything else against so that we can build an economy with it by knowing exactly in relation, by knowing exactly what bananas are valued at in relation to Bitcoin and cars are at in relation to Bitcoin. We can have an economy that does things as crazy as have a person who only makes bananas and a person who only makes cars accurately communicate value and the costs of those two psychotically different, totally unrelated things. Okay, holy crap. I'll get back to the next quote. Um, <laughs> says, uh, this, is, this is where it starts to go off the rails. Um, I'm now going to upset the Bitcoin maxis and other crypto bros and talk about, this is one thing, Elgato, if you are listening to this, we're 55 minutes in. Um, you probably cut this off by now or you're trying to argue against me. Um, and again, no disrespect here. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to do. I know I get really heated about this stuff. I just, it fascinates me and excites me. And I, this is, this is how I get worked up and this is why I enjoy doing the show. Um, but uh, t don't relate crypto and Bitcoin. Crypto is a bunch of copycat crap with all due respect. Um, and I, I don't mean to insult anybody who's like really into crypto. It is a misunderstanding of what money is and what the technology is. I think, I think it's that same misunderstanding that this is an app and this is about payments and features and these sorts of things. And I think that is all a distraction. I think that is all aggressively downstream from its monetary integrity and to trade its monetary integrity for like twice as many transactions is so pointlessly stupid 
you know, the, the idea of digital monetary integrity that cannot be controlled and is not subject to any particular jurisdiction and has rules that are, that are, that a regulator cannot change is a zero to one invention. It is a breakthrough of absolutely revolutionary proportions. There's, there's nothing else that has never happened before ever. Payments, so easy. So stupid easy. We can do payments a billion different ways. We can do Google spreadsheets. We can do payment apps. We can do uh, a centralized trusted apps. We can do like redeemable tokens. We can do physical like payments are so easy. We've been doing payments forever. We've been doing payments since the 1500s. Please, if I can get any, if, if there's anything that you can grasp about what Bitcoin is, it's not about payments. Transactions are really just kind of a side effect of the ownership system and the monetary schedule. It kind of has to be a part of it. But Bitcoin does roughly the exact same, like, it's like, it's like eerily close, almost the exact same number of transactions per second as Fedwire does. Just on its face, take out the fact that we actually have cryptographic private and instant payment networks on top of Bitcoin. Take that out. That L2 is here. It's not down the road. To suggest that Bitcoin can't scale is to suggest that Fedwire can't scale. Well, how does, how does Fedwire have thousands of payment networks on top of it? Well, because they use Fedwire to settle. Because payments are easy, and you can do it a hundred bajillion different ways. The difficult thing is sovereignty, independence, censorship resistance, and immutability. Those are the things that you can't get with anything else. I didn't even make it through the quote. All right, go back. Um, so don't, crypto bros and crypto in general fails to understand what this is. They universally think it's fintech. They think it's payments apps. They think it's the next Uber and the next Airbnb. When it's far more akin to the new foundation upon which the internet will be restructured on top of. For the same reason I don't ask you every day which one your favorite internet is, we will not be asking which one our favorite digital money is. If I have learned anything about money in my thousands and thousands of hours of digging into it and explaining it and, and trying desperately to understand it, it is that it will be a winner-takes-all. I, I think even fiat currency would, which, you know, going back... 20 years or maybe 30 years it was basically 80 percent the dollar so there's there's always been a world reserve currency it just shifts because those monies end up failing in some form or fashion especially the more trusted that they end up being so even though every jurisdiction forces the people in their jurisdiction to use one particular currency that 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 jurisdictional master that that government can control, print, and cheat the accounting system of because of the ungodly amounts of benefit and power that it gives them. Despite that, we still have a global reserve. We still have a largely singular monetary network. What happens when you take all of those barriers away? When you actually have raw competition, unhindered, uncensorable competition among open monetary networks now monetary transitions usually happen like in a century like 
monetary monetization and demonetization monetization is an insanely slow process. So if you're expecting this to happen five years from now or 10 years from now, I think we got a really bad timeline here. I like Bitcoin, but I'm sure there will be plenty of crypto, lots of crypto stuff still around. I don't think it will matter nearly as much as it does today or as it did last year. I think we've hit peak crypto in relation to Bitcoin now. But I do believe this is a winner takes all, without a doubt. Man, all right, we're going to have to pause and hit our sponsor really quick and then we'll jump back in. If I'm right about this being a winner takes all situation and we are literally talking about the monetization event of a lifetime, of a couple of centuries, then there are two things that are important above all else. One, you have to be exposed to Bitcoin in some way. And two, you need to hold your keys. Get it on a tap signer, get it on open dime, get it on a card, cold card, get on any hardware device. Own your Bitcoin, own your keys, keep it safe, and do it in a way that's easy to access, easy to recover, and secure. That is why the cold card exists. That is why CoinKite exists. The company makes, have, have been for 12 years in Bitcoin have been making the best Bitcoin security devices out there, as well as just some really cool additional fun devices like the Block Clock and the Block Clock Mini and all of these things. They just have an amazing store with so many great options. Check them out and you get 9% off with code Bitcoin Audible on the cold card and you can order the Q1, which is the Cypherpunk Blackberry. I've already ordered mine. I am very, very eager for this one, uh, I will have a link in the show notes so you can check it out and obviously order your own. Do it sooner rather than later. Own your Bitcoin. So that was oh, 10 minutes on the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. Halfway through one sentence in a quote. Man, I, I've got to figure out this thing called being concise. Um, but here's the quote. Let's just get through this and then and then I'll get to my, my uh, rant. Quote, I'm now going to upset the Bitcoin maxis and other crypto bros and talk about what we ideally need in money. It needs to be stable, secure, private, reliable, scalable. Great. I just do not see BTC or Bitcoin getting there. I'm a big believer in crypto as an idea, and I think there are 1.0 products that have not reached, they are 1.0 products that have not reached minimum product viability and never will without fundamental redesign. Read the footnote for more. Personally, my abiding suspicion is that the trustless peer-to-peer -peer systems are inherently problematic because trust in systems of commerce and payment is a feature, not a bug, at least at the edge. Oh, man. You explained it in your refutation of it. All right, so first we're going to rewind it back a bit, and then we're going to read the footnotes after this. Uh, and I'm going to try not to interrupt myself. Um, so it's funny here because he says, stable, secure, private, reliable, and scalable. The only thing that even slightly has those characteristics right now is Bitcoin. And there is no comparison. Again, we do not want price stability for the sake of price stability because it's circular nonsense. Same as we don't want stable weather reports. What we want is a stable economic system on which to build economic networks that give us the reality 
of the resource network. And this can only be achieved, it is optimally achieved, with a money that does not change in supply. Okay, so that's stable. And that means, and it also has the feedback loop of more people buying into the network, joining the network, it increases the purchasing power and the scope of what is available for that network good. You can love or hate the idea of something new being monetized. You could scream at it all day, scream at the clouds, fine. But I'll tell you, Africa lost a century of development and ended up enslaved because they used a money that got demonetized by the English. They could, you can complain about it, you can be mad about it, and use your weak money all day long. Use a soft money when a hard money is entering into the space. The soft money will get demonetized and all of your resources will be sucked away from you. Any economy that tries to price on soft money will get eviscerated. It will all suck up into the black hole that is the hardest money in the space. Complain about early adopters getting rich. Complain about how savers get to buy more over time. Doesn't matter. We're talking about monetization of a new harder monetary asset and the demonetization of a crappy one it does not care whether you are going to complain about it it is a force of nature it is like gravity if you jump off the cliff you will slam into the ground at terminal velocity and splatter like a water balloon and you can complain all the way down but gravity will not appease you it will not make an exception it will not feel bad for you and may give you a very soft, cushy landing. It will provide its universal, unchanging force all the way to the ground. That said, I think the fact that I'm a Bitcoiner, so, you know, call me biased or whatever, I don't really care. The fact that savers are incentivized to save in a monetization event more aggressively than at any other point and that they are encouraged to produce resources as much as humanly possible and consume nothing there is no force that could be as beneficial to our current situation where we are indebted up to our eyeballs and another thousand feet above us where everybody is consuming as quickly as they can and going into debt as fast as they can to, to acquire as many resources and houses and assets as possible before the collapse. And that everybody for decades and decades and decades has been produced, has been, cons excuse me, has been consuming things that they cannot and have not ever produced for. The fact that the dollar, that the fiat currency is having to pay for that is exactly why the monetization of Bitcoin is so aggressively in the reverse. There is nothing that we need so bad as a 100x incentive to produce as much as you can and consume nothing at all. To counteract the fact that we are all consuming as much as we possibly can and producing nothing at all. There's no other way out of this. That incentive is the solution. And like I said, it's like gravity. We can love it or hate it. We can fight it or we can swim with it. But it's not going to change a damn thing. 
Then he says secure. There is nothing yet again that compares to Bitcoin. Every money in the world can be arbitrarily changed by its masters. And having a wide selection, his Elgato's argument is really good, is that if you have a wide selection of them, that anyone that is uh, manipulated is going to quickly be affected by movement out. Like basically leverage is going to be punished and credit risk is going to be priced accordingly. So even though all PBDCs in this imagined world were very, very easily manipulated, the fact that you're among a crowd of PBDCs and people can choose to not use yours is a protection of sorts. I mean, competition is a decent protection. It's a mild protection, but it's a decent one. It's a little bit like being in a group of people to protect you from being violently assaulted versus in Bitcoin would be like having a force field to protect you from being violently assaulted. So being in the group is pretty good protection, generally. But having a force field that protects you whether you're in a group of people or not, and against anyone in the group, even if they do decide to attack you and everybody else decides not to protect you, having a force field is pretty nice. It's a whole hell of a lot better assurance than hoping that the crowd is going to be honest and that someone is going to be deterred from attacking you because everyone will see them and or someone may step in. Again, it's not zero protection, but it's not like a force field. The self-ownership of Bitcoin, the assurances that it grants, are the best available. Period. When it comes to security, nothing can compete with Bitcoin. All you have to do is look at it fundamentally. Bitcoin's the only thing that you can own digitally. The only thing that you can own digitally that you actually own. It's yours. Everything else is permissioned. Everything else is at the behest of a bank. It's a permissioned payment network. Like dollars don't even exist outside of the chartered permission of a bank that says, that is allowed to say that you own a dollar. Cash was the best alternative to that, was the closest thing to a bearer asset, something that you own because you hold it. And even that is meaningless because the government can print $8 trillion of thin air. You might as well say you can own Monopoly money while the company that makes monopoly games and monopoly money is just printing them out every day every year over and over and over again what are your what are your pink hundreds worth jack all now we can talk about security assurances and nuance and where it's not perfect and all the rest of the things but that is beside the point because what are we comparing it to there is nothing that requires there is no centralized system that requires its master to spend a dollar worth of value to alter its history. And it certainly doesn't cost any more to alter something 10 years from earlier, uh, like 10 years ago, as it does to alter something right now. Like the closest thing they have is someone might look at, the, like watch them or s notice that they did that and they could get in trouble. But now they do it all the time and nobody gets in trouble for any of it. In fact, it's like applauded and it's, it's called bailouts and it's, and it's called quantitative betterment practices or whatever bullshit word they come up with today. It's just cheating. It's, it's just legitimized cheating. But it doesn't cost them anything. They just go into a spreadsheet. It's just like like you got a file on your computer, like a, like a number spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet anywhere, or like a Google spreadsheet. You just go in there, some, something has like a date on it, you just change it. That, that's, that's, what it that's what our money, money system is. That's how it works. That's how hard it is to change to alter the history or a transaction of every single fiat monetary system in the world, every centralized permissioned payment system in the world. Bitcoin is the only one that stands out. 
Bitcoin costs millions of dollars just to go back an hour or so. So we have a fundamentally different proposition. We're fundamentally arguing com- from a completely different place when we start talking about the, ass- the degree of Bitcoin's assurances and how it plays out in like a political game theory sp- uh, sense, which is a really fun discussion, by the way. I'm not like shying away from that or saying that like, oh, Bitcoin's godlike or whatever, but I am saying there's nothing to compare it to. So if we're going to have a discussion about it, if we're going to talk about Bitcoin's faults or limitations from its game theory design, game theoretic design, well, you have to do in relation to what? Because if it's a centralized permission system, it's, there's no comparison to be made at all. There simply is no other decentralized, independent, autonomous, immutable monetary, digital monetary asset that you can hold that is actually yours without some other counterparty deciding whether or not you're going to get it. Okay, that's enough. Then to private. Again, Bitcoin is pseudonymous. Um, The payment networks built on top are private and have no permanent record. Uh, We'll get to Lightning again in a minute, which Elgato does not seem to know about or at least has put on the same blinders of the crypto space where everybody with their better payment token and bigger blocks thinks that they have a use case. Um, But a centralized controlled system cannot be private you can offer offer privacy as a service but if it is a permissioned monetary unit you don't have privacy to the custodian and they will never give you that the the best you can do is trust them to not share your information with somebody else which is again like trusting somebody in the crowd like trusting a bodyguard to protect you Versus having a force field. If you actually have cryptographic privacy, that's a totally different game. It, it's a, they're not in the same playing field. It's, it's whether or not you have a trustworthy party to help uh, and provide you a service and whether or not they're going to be able to provide that service or they even want to continue to provide that service or whether a jurisdiction or somebody bigger with a bigger gun and bigger muscles is going to come in and squeeze their freaking neck until they cha- make, make them change that policy. Because that's what governments do all the time. That's why you don't have privacy anymore. Or a force field, which actually gives you cryptographic privacy because of its very design. So this is where Lightning is incredibly interesting because payments aren't recorded um, forever on the blockchain. Uh, which, despite the fact... like one of the, the reason I mentioned that it's pseudonymous is because Bitcoin itself is not private. But the reason so much of its transaction history can be tied to two people and tied together and, uh, you know, basically you can get like a chain analysis database and you can assess a lot of what is going on on the Bitcoin network. The reason is, is because you're always like two transactions away from an exchange because we're still in the monetization phase pretty hard. Um, And during that, your integration with the fiat system, which is fully KYC'd. Know your customer, anti-money laundering laws. Like you can't, you can't do anything in the fiat system without scanning, you know, without giving them a, a sample of your DNA and scanning your butt and sending it to them in an email, taking a picture with your license. A fiat system is horribly, horribly surveilled and anti-privacy, which means that if you attach your Bitcoin, your Bitcoin addresses, like your Bitcoin transactions to that, 
It's really easy, but the entire privacy leak is on the fiat side. It's because you have to integrate with exchanges all the time. I say that's largely a transitional problem because when you have a circular economy, that doesn't happen anymore. You don't have these constant outflows to, or inflows or outflows to KYC, AML, everything. When most transactions are nine steps away, 12 steps away from a KYC, AML, and they circulate through the economy multiple times, well, then you end up with like the bulk, like 60 to 70% of transactions, not having any concrete connection to any other person or user. And suddenly the pseudonymous nature of Bitcoin is actually pretty good. Not great, mind you. Still, you know, a record of transactions and a fully auditable system, specifically because it's about monetary integrity. We will go back to that again in a second. And you have to be able to audit the entire supply to know that the money hasn't been cheated because it is digital. It is just a set of rules. But that's why we build layer two. That's why we build eCash. We take all of the cryptographic tricks that the cypherpunks and the many attempts at making digital money in the past before Bitcoin finally seems to have made it work. Um, well, we have like a long, long history of cryptographers and cypherpunks who built all of the tools for privacy and anonymity and these systems that we need and now they needs to be, need to be reapplied and re-implemented, and we actually have an open, decentralized, global, monetary, digital network in order to build them on. And that's why you have things like eCash, like Cashew Wallet, um, and you have things like Fediment, and we have Lightning, which is an onion-routed payment system. So when I pay, like Cash App, Cash App's a great example, right? Is that if I pay from my Phoenix wallet right now on my mobile, um... Granted, in this instance, I'm actually using Phoenix's note, so I'm leaking privacy information to them. But nonetheless, I could do this. It is non-custodial. It's mine. Uh, privacy is 100% possible. But just talking about this from the sake of cash's, cash app's perspective, you can now deposit over Lightning into Cash App. And I've done it a couple times just because it's fun. I don't really sell on Cash App or anything. And you can withdraw. It, you know, they've just got Lightning integrated now. But when you deposit, you pay an invoice and they, they get an onion routed payment, which is like the Tor network, the privacy network, an onion routed payment come to the Lightning network. They have no idea where it came from. They don't know the originating node. They don't know. They don't have anything other than the hop that was immediately next to them. I don't have a channel with Cash App in any of the things that I am doing. I have no idea where their node is. And so my lightning payment is entirely private to them. When I am paying, uh, like today, I, I went back to Clean Juice and talked to uh, 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 some people who I have been chatting with Bitcoin and uh, signed them up with Wallet of Satoshi to receive tips, which is custodial. So when they make a payment, it will not be private. They'll be able to see who it went to. But when I send a payment, they have no idea. Wallet of Satoshi doesn't know who sent that payment. I do have privacy. Now, it could be a whole lot better. And there's, like any digital network, there's ways that information leaks. You're still using an IP address to, you know, talk from your node and you're, you know, requesting information from the network. There's all sorts of nuances and things to dig into there. And, you know, privacy is a really big and important issue um, that is that has no blanket answer. Right. There's no there's no perfect privacy. It's it's a constant fight of privacy technologies, this push and pull of privacy technologies and uh, 
surveillance technologies. And I think surveillance systems and surveillance technologies have made massive, massive leaps in the last like 20, 20 to 30 years. And it's largely because all of our digital systems are highly centralized and permissioned. They all work in giant silos of proprietary corporate networks they're owned and they mine these things for data they package that shit up and they sell it off to all of their affiliates it is it it, it literally makes 1984 look soft it, it makes it look subdued i mean we have the most elaborate multifaceted centralized completely visible surveillance device that we carry around in our pocket and we spend most of the day staring into it luckily technology is currently making a massive leap back in the other direction and bitcoin is critical an absolutely critical piece of this puzzle because if you don't have an independent decentralized base to work off of if you're still stuck in a centralized permission system there's still no way to there's no way to go about it there's, there's you can't undo it's like you know greg maxwell talked about this back in early days of bitcoin is that you can't build a decentralized system on top of a centralized system everything is only a derivative right like whatever your base decentralization and independence is that is the absolute optimal that you can get for anything that you build on top of it therefore if you start sacrificing your base layer security and decentralization then any other feature or privacy benefit or thing that you want to build on top of it is going to have to its lowest common denominator so to speak will be the degree of integrity and decentralization that your base layer allows so privacy is never going to end um but in in this context Bitcoin beats a centralized system. It just does because privacy is possible on top of a decentralized system and it just really isn't on top of a permission centralized system. And the second that you do build something like that on a centralized system, a jurisdiction comes in, a government comes in and it, it's good, it's done if they don't want it to be there. Like they, they either allow it to happen or it's n not going to happen. And then there's reliability. Tick tock, next block. Of all the things that we could discuss, nothing even enters into the same playing field as the reliability that Bitcoin has provided from a global digital network settlement perspective. Its supply guarantees, its monetary policy, its increased uh, security consistently the fact that no ownership has ever been violated outside of the rules, no transactions have been censored, everything that Bitcoin has instantiated into its rule set and into its network system has stayed perfectly reliable. Now, everything that people like Elgato even like alludes to this is the idea of people getting hacked and like, oh, it's terrible. I mean, as someone who has lost coins for bad key management like i couldn't i could not better know those rules but it's like claiming that gravity is never going to be adopted because i fell down these things are external to the rules the in fact my problem the 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 bitcoins that i lost back in the day are specifically 
proof that the rules can't be cheated, that there is no compromise, that it is truly independent, that it is truly decentralized. The failures only happen outside of the system itself. The rules have not failed. The computers at the edge have failed. The people have failed to protect their keys and understand the importance and the immutability of those rules, myself included. People in computers are hacked. Bitcoin has not been hacked. You could just as rightfully say SHA-256 is never going to get adopted and we're never going to use signatures and certificates and SSL on the internet and HTTPS and, and we're not going to use any of these cryptographic tools that we use all the freaking time. Why? Because people can lose their passwords. Well, because people can get hacked. Well, those are the exact opposite of those things not doing their job. It's computers at the end or software not doing its job or interfaces sucking and not teaching people how to, you know, a lack of computer literacy, whatever the hell you want to call it. But it's not the system. It's not the cryptographic uh, algorithm. Those things are not at fault. They didn't fail. They did their job perfectly. And the last is scalability. And again, money, currency, payment systems. They're not the same. And this is just that very persistent mental model, incorrect mental model out there. Most people conflate these and they are simply different things. They're entirely different layers of the monetary stack. Bitcoin is the most tech scalable technology we have for exactly what it intends to and is meant to scale. Consensus. In fact, Bitcoin is a scaling technology. It's just not about payments. Payments are secondary. It explicitly sacrifices scale of payments in order to get the scale of reliability, integrity of the chain, auditability, the security of the system, the decentralization and independence of the system, and the social scalability of its monetary base. So social scalability is that thing we talked about. There's a great piece called Money, Blockchains, and Social Scalability. It's probably the best thing to always go back to on that concept, even though we've read a bunch of things on it. But by Nick Zabo, it is, you know, social scalability is like a language, right? Is that I can go to, uh, I've never been to, let's see, what's a state I've never been? I've never been to Delaware. Elgato mentions Delaware. I can go to Delaware. And I can have a conversation with people. I can go into a movie theater and fully expect that in the middle of the movie, nobody's going to jump up and take a crap on the seat in front of me. I can, I have all of these reliable and consistent expectations about human behavior. I can communicate with people and I know the basic rules of society because we have a handful of consensus networks. We have behavioral consensus that, you know, if somebody's screaming bloody murder and raising their hands and like just pushing things over and sprinting down the street, that's out of the ordinary. We have consensus on the fact that that behavior is strange and everybody's going to be looking around like, what the hell is this guy doing? What are we running away from? Like, it's going to be out of the ordinary. It's going to be odd. It's going to be confusing and frightening because it is out of the common behavioral consensus. Same thing with 
language. If if you don't speak English the same way that I do, it's going to be very, very confusing. But because we have these consensus networks uh, and these consensus systems, I can go to a place that I have never been before and talk to people I have never met and that I know nothing about. And we can get along perfectly fine. Bitcoin is that for economic trade and communication. That is what money does. It is a consensus network. But it is the reliability, going back to those other things, it's the reliability of those behaviors, of the rules of behaviors. There might be a culture out there somewhere that just, I don't know, at noon every day, everybody screams and runs around and holds their hands up and starts pushing everything over and sprints down the street as fast as they can. And if I ended up in that community, I would, I would lose my shit. I would have no idea what the hell was going on. Because I, am, I have left my consensus network about a particular behavior at a particular time of the day. Same if I go and speak to somebody that just decides to have all different definitions for English. There's just this communication barrier. and Much better analogy. They just speak a different language. Um, but I go to that and so, suddenly my ability to, to, to operate, um, my ability to get any useful knowledge or socialize the social scalability of my lack of having the same language basically falls apart this same thing that when it comes to cultural communication is the same thing for economic communication and for having a single economic system and consensus as opposed to many disparate ones that are in conflict with each other it's the difference between cooperation and conflict the thing that Bitcoin does is social scalability. It is the purpose. It is the ultimate, most valuable use case that it provides. It is an ownership system and a set of rules. It's not Visa. Visa cannot and is not competing with it. Visa, Visa has no competition with Bitcoin whatsoever. Visa is not a set of rules. Visa is just a payment network on a set of rules it has no control over. It's not an app. Bitcoin's not an app. It is monetary infrastructure on which you can build Visa. You can have the same centralized payment system as Visa on top of Bitcoin. You can just make it so that you can, you can fund your debit card with Bitcoin and it stays as Bitcoin on the thing and they can just change their spreadsheet from dollars to Bitcoin and it'll work everywhere in the world and house billions and billions of transactions and suddenly, oh my God, Bitcoin scales because payments don't matter. Payments are easy to do. At least in the sense that we have always done them. There's no problem with centralized trusted payment systems. Aside from the fact that they are centralized and trusted and we don't really have an alternative. That's why we have Lightning and it's like. But Lightning is actually competing with Visa. Even though Lightning provides something that Visa doesn't. Is self-custody, ownership, uh, the potential for privacy, and um, sovereignty. Like you run it, you control it. You can run your own little part of the network as a decentralized network, just like Bitcoin, just in a different way. That is actually competing with Visa. So that's a relatively honest comparison, at least when you're comparing, when you're comparing payments. But still, you're getting way, way more with Lightning that still Visa cannot provide you. But the reason that Bitcoin is a social scalable, socially a massively, a, an optimally socially scalable system is that no matter where you are in the world, no matter what two square feet of dirt 
or sand or rock or water or ice that your, your feet, your body is planted on, no matter which hemisphere you're in, no matter what jurisdiction you are in, no matter what the temperature is, no matter what your values are, no matter what your religion is, no matter what your political beliefs are, what sports team you like, what sports you do or do not like, all of it is entirely meaningless with your relation to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the same Bitcoin for you as it is to every single other person on the planet. They don't have any, any more power than you do. They don't have any more permission. Their ownership isn't stronger or weaker. As Dergigi said in the recent piece on the meme wars, uh, Bitcoin's meme war, is fiat currency answers all currencies end up answering the question, who can counterfeit this and who has access? And they're convoluted, absurd answers that are subjective, that change all the time. They're dependent on who the master is at any one point in time, who the owner is. They're all over the place. They're the least reliable set of rules you could possibly imagine when it comes to money. They're all over the freaking place. They're unreliable. And they create exactly this sort of huge economic misallocation and destructive, self-eating, suicidal system that we have today. Bitcoin answers those same questions. Who can counterfeit this and who has access? The answer to who can counterfeit this is nobody. Nobody forever and always. The answer to who has access is everyone forever and always. That is social scalability. It applies to everyone equally. No exceptions. Build an infinite number of centralized, trusted payment systems that are cheap, that have all these great features, that are integrated, that are in every jurisdiction you want, whatever. Doesn't matter. Bitcoin doesn't have a scalability problem. The integrity, the sovereignty, and the, the military tank force field security of an on-chain Bitcoin transaction has a scalability problem. But Bitcoin, as a digital network, or, or as, as a potential monetary network and a layered money system, does not have a scalability problem because it can scale like every money has scaled since forever. The thing is, is that we don't want it to have to. We want to extend its sovereignty, its non-custodial nature and its independent nature as far and as high up the layers as possible. And that is what things like Fediment, eCash do for privacy and for sharing custodial risk. So that rather than trusting one party, you're trusting a group of parties to not go in together, which is even better than like, that's something that you can't do with PBDC. So right there, Fediment actually offers cryptographic privacy from the custodians and splits up the custodial risk and can even split it up against multiple jurisdictions. Boom, you beat PBDCs already and it scales practically infinitely. And then you have Lightning, which is orders of magnitude more adopted and is available right now and is a massive, massive scalability to the payment issue in Bitcoin. Oh man, 
How did I go this long? It's too much to explain. It's too, there's, too many, there's too many threads to follow and dig into. I mean, just the pricing system is a 30-minute, or was a 30-minute tangent. I'm out of time. I'm out of time. I'm going to have to do this again tomorrow. I'm going to have to extend this episode. I'm literally not halfway through my notes. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this because we're going to do it again tomorrow. And I'm sure El Gato is long gone. But uh, if they are here, uh, I want to say that my intent here was not to like trash the article. I read the article because I liked the article. Um, And, you know, not chastise or insult you or anything about like your lack of knowledge and I don't mean that negatively just I mean who the hell who the hell could know about Bitcoin if they hadn't dedicated themselves like you have to start to see the little pieces of okay this is a little bit more interesting than I thought okay there is some legitimacy here and you have to you have to really spend time just pulling that thread out in order to really find yourself to the truth of a lot of these issues. And it's understandable too. Most people come into this from crypto, um, which is the fintech fiat gambling side of Bitcoin's tech, the front-facing technology that doesn't understand its money and foundations and the monetary integrity side of Bitcoin at all where that side is actually the genuine revolutionary innovation of Bitcoin, while the tech and the fintech side of it is just kind of the Silicon Valley, ooh, I'm going to invest in a network and it's going to go 10, 100x, and it's going to be great side of it. It's, it's, just the, it's just the speculative side of it. And it's mostly a distraction because you don't need a token for every utility. If you needed a token for every utility, you would defeat the purpose of money. This is something that I, I want to continue to reiterate before we get back into uh, tomorrow's episode with an extension of this. And I got some great reads this week too, so I need to I need to stay on it. But that the reason you have a money is again, I guess the easiest way to think about it is language is that you have a community because you speak the same language. You have a community because you, you have the same values. You have a society and a civilization and an economy when you speak the same money. So the idea of having different money, like different tokens for every single good and service, what money does is translate between untranslatable objects going back to the silly example of bananas versus cars is that the inputs and the production processes and the skills and the the you know from the seed to the banana and from the the mining of ore in god knows where and all the, the processes of these things could not be further from each other and have less to do with each other so if you were trying to price them, the idea of trying to have a market, like a, liqu a liquid tradable market between banana tokens and car tokens, makes both 
both tokenized assets, both tokens themselves, completely useless in the pricing process because they're so illiquid and they would move so aggressively and be affect, so hugely affected by the relevant supply or production of bananas or of cars, which is the exact opposite of what you want in a money. You don't want it to be individually affected by one utility or one good or service because it's supposed to be measuring between all of them. It, you, you want it to be equally in relation to everything so that you could, for the same reason you don't want an inch measuring a house to diff, be different than an inch measuring a car or measuring a shoe or something. Like you want it to be the same inch. If you had house inches and you had car inches and you had shoe inches and you had to you had to constantly translate from one to the other, it would be madness. It would be so stupid. And it would be this giant, stupid friction on everything that we did that was totally meaningless, that had no purpose whatsoever. It didn't make you trade bananas easier. It just meant that people were trading, were speculating on banana tokens for no... Why do we want people speculating on banana tokens? Why would that be better to have more people doing that? It's a long way of saying we will not have tokens for every damn thing under the sun and it's because that is specifically i mean as soon as you have a token for everything and you're just trading tokens back and forth you just have barter with digital points there's a reason barter went away is because barter doesn't work or barter is insanely slow and insanely inefficient and insanely illiquid it just it translates economic information about as poorly as any Society could translate that information. Money does it exponentially better at an exponentially larger scale, which is why we just want a good money. But the adoption and the building out of the network and the monetization of that new monetary good is a very long, painful process. And that's where we are. We are in that process. And uh, we're going to be reading some really fun stuff this week. And I don't know if I'll come back to this. I feel like I've hit most of what mattered. Um, God, there were some things that I really wanted to address. And I'm sure Elgato, if, if there is any chance that they are still listening. Um, God, there were so many great, there were some really good quotes in this. Ah, oh, Christ. I'm going to have to come back to this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to, maybe maybe later on in this week, we'll save um, uh, another guy's take for, uh, I'll hit a couple of is- issues. I'll hit a couple of topics around this, and I'll just save these quotes, because these are topics that I want to readdress, and I know there are reads coming uh, later, probably this week, that will hit these ideas again. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to save these notes and I'm going to bring this back up. So we're, we're going to drop some of these quotes and things throughout the next like 10 episodes so we will cover it all uh you'll just have to stay subscribed you have to listen to all the episodes if you want to get the rest of this so um <laughs> thank you to uh elgato to the cat for uh writing this piece i do like it um aside from the a couple of minor uh, fundamental but minor disagreements honestly um and i really really like a lot of what was said and i will say one thing about um just because this is such a this was such a cool idea 
um, when he was talking about how like the lack of regulation and we're gonna, we need to open up the guardrails and everything is that that's, that is the solution is we need to take the training wheels off. We need to force people to actually, actually be in the environment that they are in. And when, when you have no bailout, there's no, there's no cheat code. There's no undo button in that situation. We are all given the force. We are all experiencing the force of economic reality. That is an infinitely better regulator. When you die, when, when you get destroyed, when, you're in, when your enterprise is done and you become not rich for misbehaving, for misbehaving and leveraging yourself and having stupid, irresponsible banking practices, that is a much better regulator than getting bailed out and having regulators come in and wrap you up in court for five years and then give you a slap on the hand and fine you less than what you cheated out of the system earlier. And then they, and then after, you know, a 10 year court case in which you're still in business and you're still the largest bank in the country. And they say, don't do it again, or we're going to bail you out even harder next time. Yeah. That doesn't really, that doesn't really work. Um, and then there's a, there's a quote he responds to, it says, quote, as, as if someone is responding to him, it says, Oh, but the criminals will. He says, let me stop you right there. They already are. They always will. It cannot be stopped or even moderated. It is just a make-believe bugbear like the war on drugs, pretending that it's anything but price supports for bad actors and a perpetuator of violence-driven black markets and products that are more dangerous than they need to be. Amen. God, if I could open up everybody's skull and get this quote branded onto their brain. The idea that because we give the government power to quote unquote stop criminals and let them steal hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to throw money at that task does not mean that we have less criminals. It does not mean that they are successful at that task. It does not mean that it is better after you put them in charge and it is necessarily worse before they got in charge. Just the opposite, actually. You institutionalize criminal behavior. More people get away with horrible crimes at greater scale. You do not remove the problem of criminal abuse, corruption, and, uh, and fraudulent activity. You scale it to a larger system. That is what you do when you centralize these processes you take what is local visible and in front of you and you scale it to invisible distant impossible to stop and how you don't understand you don't even know how to relate to it it is so massive and it becomes normal behavior the very pro if you just start reading just start unwrapping how our government works how lobbying works the insider trading that happens every single politician you're talking about a staggeringly massive fraudulent corrupt criminal enterprise that just never gets punished for anything and i really want to get in jeffrey epstein and Ghislaine maxwell but i think i'm gonna have to save that for another day i'm out of time all right guys thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode i hope you sign up for swan if you haven't 
Um, get your Bitcoin savings account. Get your Swan IRA. If you got a retirement, if you're putting, if you're trying to get some tax-free Bitcoin, dude, check it out. Swan.com slash IRA. Get your fold card. Even, even, even my boy at the place that I just signed up with Wallet of Satoshi and sent some tips to, got his fold card in the mail. Let's go! I've got some, uh, had a couple of house expenses today. Good sats back. Good sats back on them. You know how I keep it all safe? Put it on my cold card. Actually, right now, more recently, I've been putting it on my uh, double tap signer multi-sig. Because it's just really fun. I really love that setup. Got to check it out. Discounts. 9% off. Code Bitcoin Audible. In the show notes. All right. I'm out of here. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this ridiculous episode. And I will catch you on the next show. This is Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. If you want to help people, tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. Thomas Al. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>